Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with economist Arnold Kling, a Mercatus Center affiliated senior scholar at George Mason University. We talk about the hidden story of how markets work, the mortgage crisis, and why Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were rescued, and how we pay for healthcare. Arnold also shares with us some personal insights into his own thinking in terms of economics, as well as some advice on how to write your next economics book. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Arnold Kling. That's K-L-I-N-G. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I think probably what annoys me most is the smugness of sort of the progressive economists. They're convinced that their methodology is better than what I think it really is, and they're convinced that their what they know enables them to manage an economy from uh, a central government position better than I believe it actually can. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Arnold Kling join me today. Hi, Arnold. Welcome to the show. Uh, Nice to be here, Frank. Arnold Kling is Mercado Center Affiliated Senior Scholar at George Mason University and a member of the Financial Markets Working Group. Arnold specializes in housing finance policy, financial institutions, macroeconomics, and the inside workings of America's federal financial institutions. He is also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Arnold has testified before Congress on the collapse of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. He has authored five books, including Crisis of Abundance, Rethinking How We Pay for Healthcare, and Invisible Wealth, The Hidden Story of How Markets Work. Arnold has published articles in The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Atlantic, and Forbes, among others, and he blogs at arnoldkling.com forward slash blog. Previously, Arnold served as a senior economist at Freddie Mac and a staff economist at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. And he also started Home Fair, one of the first commercial websites on the Internet. Arnold has also received a PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Arnold, as I mentioned there in the intro, you have a fantastic, diverse interest in economics and it's spawning from a technological interest from your earlier work all the way through to the most recent regarding mortgages and healthcare. Can I ask you first off, how did you first come into contact with economics or your love for economics and how did that transition from your work in technology? Well, I guess my uh, undergraduate major was economics. I had a very inspiring professor, uh, Bernie Safran of Swarthmore College, was a very uh, tolerant of many different points of view, which is something that uh, I, I wish you could see more of on college campuses today. You know, his favorite phrase was, I'm willing to be wrong, uh, 
which is which is very uh, very instructive. So I enjoyed economics in college, and then you know, went on to grad school and got my degree in economics. After working at the Federal Reserve and uh, Freddie Mac, I kind of reached my limit as to in terms of my tolerance for working in large organizations, and this was right when the World Wide Web and the Internet were being opened for commercial activity, and I uh, say I had my midlife crisis in 1994 and started an Internet business. And so, you know, of necessity, since that was kind of the leading edge of technology at that point, uh, became very interested in technology. And when you mentioned earlier you had your midlife crisis back in 1996, is this your? Did you have some kind of misgivings or regarding the e- economics or the economy at that point in time in the United States? Or no, this is no, this is a very personal issue. Again, it's, it's in 1994. Um, I uh, felt I was kind of mistreated at work, and um, uh, I had this this instinct that the internet was going to be really important and this is 1994 and some of the first customers I'm selling advertising to had no idea what the internet was one of them wrote up a contract that started out whereas there's a service known as the internet which is owned by Arnold Kling um, so making it sound like I own the internet um, yeah, which would have been nice, but uh, that that wasn't exactly accurate. But that's how how ignorant most people were at the time. So, um, but my my instinct was it was going to be a big deal, and I just rode that instinct. And you were one hundred percent correct. And what made you different in terms of your perceptions of what was coming in terms of the internet? Um, that's a good question. I think just. It may have been sort of wishful thinking that I, I, what I saw was something that would uh, reduce the cost it would take to start a, a business that uh, you know, that would really reduce communication costs. Maybe you know, the, maybe the one thing that was special is that uh, as an economist who'd gone to MIT, I was uh, following a little bit Hal Varian who uh, was, was an, an instructor there when I was there, and he wrote a, a paper that explained the economics of the Internet, the fundal, fundamental economics of packet switching versus circuit switching, which was the traditional telephone system, and pointing out that the packet switching was benefiting from Moore's Law, and so that was going to make the Internet just progressively more and more efficient over time. So I had that as it were, a little bit of inside information that the uh, that the Internet was going to get more economical at a, at a rapid rate. In any case, you may know that Hal Varian went on uh, to become the chief economist at Google uh, and you know, designed their, their double-sided auction system for advertising and so on. So he did very well with his yeah, insights into the Internet also. This is something that is becoming quite prominent now today, especially with technology companies that they're relying or looking at economists, be it the behavioral economists, I think Uber and Airbnb are looking at economists who work with the sharing economy or those concepts of tin markets and making them quite thick. And Hal Varian would have been, at that point in time, as you mentioned, I wasn't aware of it, that he was so early on, like yourself, but I was aware that he is the chief. He is the chief economist at Google. So this is quite a 
startling and eye-opening realization that there's more to economics than the lecture room. Yeah, there's um, the understanding. You know, again, going he understood that you know how the the costs of the internet were uh, what what determined them, and he had to understand the technology there, and then following through on that. And he and uh, Carl Shapiro co-authored. I think the book came out around 1998 a book called Information Rules, which was about um, just trying to apply good economic thinking to the problem of information goods. Because, And, and that was another thing that Hal Varian uh, pointed me to, uh, a weird article by John Perry Barlow, who was famous uh, prior to that only as a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, and uh, but John Perry Barlow pointed out that you know information, uh, you know basically you know, the, the phrase information wants to be free that wasn't his phrase but that there there's a sense in which that's true in that the marginal cost of information uh, you know spreading out information is zero so let's say you're talking about a, a song and if you distribute the song over the internet in some sense it costs nothing for the next user to uh, enjoy the song, whereas before, when you could only distribute with records, at least it cost the physical cost of manufacturing and distributing the record. So that just makes a huge difference economically in how the Internet works, and that sort of, uh, again, Varian used that knowledge uh, in helping to guide Google. Um, And... Uh, you can see in just in that book, Information Rules, uh, a lot of thought that very much uh, applies today about how uh, how businesses necessarily have to operate in a world where, uh, as it were, information wants to be free. Again, a lot of there aren't many companies out there that are actually giving this information or some information away for for free. Uh, hence the term freemium. But obviously, there's um. There's, they want to build trust with their customers so down the line they could be seen as the the one type of person or individual or company who can deliver what you actually want and will end up selling uh, to you down the line. Um, and did you, do you see this transitioning to many companies, obviously for manufacturing that there wouldn't be such, that, that wouldn't be the case, but when it comes to information like education? Yeah, the... Again, the the you know the Varian Shapiro book Information Rules lists all the you know the the possibilities. You know, you can obviously you can have advertising. Uh, another important thing, which I think perhaps you alluded to, uh, they call versioning, where you have a free version that, like you say, builds up trust and um, and awareness among users, and then you have the um, you know, the, a paid version which has you know more features. So um, and, you know, and there there are other models as well, and they and they discuss those. And I'm sure there, like the Economist magazine and some newspapers who have gone onto the onto the internet with their digital sites or the digital content, they do offer some window into some of the articles. But then they with that versioning, I'm sure you're what you refer to, and that's the type of model they're building up on. 
Yeah, I, I actually don't think that's where things will end up. Um, I, I, for a long time, have thought that bundling uh, was going to be the approach. So something like uh, what Amazon has, um, maybe the... Um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of their service where you, you pay a monthly fee and you get access to a lot. Amazon Prime? Is no, it's not, no, it's not Prime. I, I forget. It's um, Kindle Unlimited. Oh, yes. That's, I think, what it's called. That is the model that I think things will eventually head to because, you know, I don't want to so much subscribe to the New York Times, you know, to pay the premium version of that, but I would pay a subscription a monthly subscription that got me articles from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, foreign newspapers, whatever. And Amazon with Kindle Unlimited at least has that bundling principle in mind. That is, you book, you know, you're you're not unlimited uh, just within a particular publisher's uh, set of books. You have, you know, whatever books that they can uh, bundle together into their unlimited. Uh, program and I, I think that ultimately will be where things are headed where you, you'll be able to buy subscribe on a, like a monthly basis to bundles of things you know sort of Pandora you can think of in the music space as kind of operating that way where you you know if you pay a monthly subscription you don't have any limit as to how many downloads you can have and so on Arnold when you started home fair, was this the type of concept you had? Because I'm sure a lot of this content you would have on there would have been free. The information would have been free, but perhaps built your your income. Hopefully, was going to be built on advertisement. Yeah, that yeah. The model that I had in mind was uh, sponsorship. That is, uh, there would be uh, absolutely, like you say, absolutely free content, but that this would be sort of brought to you by. And uh, and that was the model we had, and we actually had that working quite well. It, it the, the site was for people who were relocating, and some of the information we would give them was cost of living comparisons because if you're moving to a different city, you have no idea necessarily you know, whether that the salary you're being offered is higher or lower than the salary where you are once you adjust for the cost of living. So the cost of living comparisons were popular. Uh, and some of these other features that we had, and uh, the and the idea was then people you would have sponsors. So if you uh, said I'm I'm interested in the cost of living in uh, San Jose, California, uh, there would be sponsors that would you know from San Jose, California, real estate agents or, or other people, and that worked well. We had a very high sort of revenue per page view uh, sponsorship model going on there. This is, again, this is about 1996, 1997 that we got that, you know, sort of got the right content and the right uh, sponsorship model going. And if you were, if if you were starting over again, if you don't mind me saying this, Arnold, would you think you would have been in a better situation if you were to start home fair? Given the say similar circumstances where the internet, well, you couldn't really say the internet was relatively new if it was today, because you end up being in the same situation. But if you knew now what you knew then, um, and you had the broadband and yeah, I, I think 
Yeah, I think it's a tough question to formulate because, you know, I mean, one of my jokes is that I always tell students that if they get a chance to sell an Internet business in 1999, they should take that chance. I mean, they're just, you know, it's hard to run counterfactuals. I mean, you know, there were, there were tons of things I didn't know uh, and things that I was really naive about. And yet, in some ways, that was an advantage because because we learned very rapidly. And so you know, what we saw happening in like 1997, 1998 was companies coming into our space with you know, millions of dollars in venture capital, way more than what we had to spend. But they were spending all that money learning what we had learned in those early years when there was nobody out there. So, so in some sense, the main lesson is, you know, if you is uh, you know, make your mistakes before other people do, and learn from them. And I'm sure that goes back to your 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 lecturer Bernie Saffer, who said, "I'm willing to be wrong." Yeah. And obviously, you know, to make mistakes, you'll only learn from them too. Yeah, I could list a whole bunch of of mistakes that we made, uh, but but it was. You, the, the internet was growing so rapidly at that point that uh, it, it was forgiving a lot of mistakes. Uh, hence Moore's law. Maybe that's something that some and people who are aware of Moore's law may not be. There are the subtle intricacies or intricate details that Moore's law would bring with it. That it's very hard to catch up and to make mistakes. You have to learn quickly from it and move on. Yeah, no, it, it does move quickly. I mean, uh, some people have been following the world of Go, the game, and that recently a computer has done well against a human. And I would say because of Moore's law, that means humans are hopeless because, you know, once once the computer catches up to the human at something, it just leaves the human behind very quickly. And can you see this type of relationship computers and humans tend to in a way, cross over and live a kind of a, a universal, I, I, I don't know, a universal economic environment based on, say, some of your interests, for example, when it comes to, say, how, how markets work. So, say, for example, your book, Invisible Wealth, A Hidden Story of How Markets Work. So there's a lot of uncertainties and unknowns and, as you mentioned, ongoing evolution that's happening in this complex world that we live in. But economics tends to simplify situations and perhaps avoids these type of unknowns. And would you think, even though we are aware of the transition of computers and uh, robotics and how this could impact us, there's still that uncertainty that does exist. Oh, yeah. And uh, especially with regard to time. You know, something that happened in the late 1990s is that there was a fiber bubble. That is, companies over-invested in fiber for the you know, for, for the internet, and a lot of them went and they, they were heavily levered, and, and several of them went bankrupt around you know 2000 or so. But they were only off by a couple of years. You know, the, the excess fiber. That they made was, you know, quantitatively huge. You know, three or four times what was needed at the time. But within a few years, it was all being used. Um, and that's, I, I think that those are the, the the uncertainties. So, for example, self-driving cars are inevitable, 
and they're going to make a huge impact uh, on on our lives and on the economy. But I you, I see ranges of forecasts for them, you know, being you know having a major impact that go as early as two years and as late as uh, another thirty years. So. Um, you know, that's a huge source of uncertainty. And when things are growing at an exponential rate, you get that because if they're growing at at two percent, you get uh, it takes a long time for things to happen. If they're growing at fifteen percent, takes very little time. Talking about all this exponential growth, I spoke recently to Robin Hanson from George Mason University, and we talked about his recent book about brain emulations. And do you envision, I know this could be way off, but would you envision a world where we are moving toward that type of economy? That's a tough one. I mean, I've argued with Robin at various points in time saying that, you know, the human learning process involves our senses and metaphors based on our senses. Um, so, you know, so that we, you know, as we're playing with things and chasing things and throwing things, that's kind of training our brains. But you know, so I'm not absolutely sure that just the, the notion that you can emulate a, brain, a human brain without a body uh, works. But you know, there are computer scientists who are who are working very hard on trying to enable computers to engage in you know, what they call deep learning. So I'm, I, I don't want to count them out. It just may be that the t- you know, this may be another instance where the timing may be different, you know, that some of Robin's scenarios might be 100 years off rather than 20 years off or something like that. But no, I think he his ideas are plausible enough that they're worth, certainly worth paying attention to. And Arnold, your book, as I briefly alluded to, their invisible wealth, a hidden story of how markets work. What was your reason for writing this book, and is it a, in a way, a, an attack on economics, or would that be quite harsh? Um, it is, in some ways, an attack on conventional economics. It's it sort of, you know, if you use the analogies of hardware and software, I think that con- that conventional economics has been focused way too much on hardware. And the analogy, what that analogy represents is the traditional factors of production, labor, capital, land. And what the book argues is that that software is important. You can think of um, the institutions in society as like the operating system. So that includes uh, all the informal rules that people have, as well as the... uh, framework laid out by government. That's kind of the operating system, and that turns out to be very important. And the other thing is uh, ideas. Again, we talked about information wants to be free. So ideas are free, uh, but they have to be developed and uh, and implemented, and it's the ideas that generate the growth. So think of two questions. One question is, why are we so much richer than we were just a couple hundred years ago. And we really are spectacularly richer than we were a couple hundred years ago. And and the, the explanation for that has to be in ideas. That is, it's not in the hardware that we've, you know, accumulated so much more capital or have so much more labor. Because, I mean, you know, just, just having more labor just in some sense is more mouths to feed as well as having more product, uh, productivity capacity. So 
it's mostly these intangible ideas that we've learned about antibiotics, we've learned you know, how to build cars, how to build computers. So the ideas are, are most of the contribution to wealth, hence the title Invisible Wealth. Uh, but then you have to ask, well, you know, we are so rich and ideas can spread easily, but why is North Korea so poor? Why is Cuba so poor? And what immediately leaps to mind there is, uh, you know, bad institutions, you know, the uh, communist authoritarian governments. So, so that gets this idea, well, you need a good operating system, you need a, uh, economic freedom and property rights, and, uh, and, and just a general culture that can obey rules and cooperate in that sense. And that's, that's a good operating system. And then you need the, uh, in some sense, the software applications, which are the ideas and the innovations, the people who come up with the iPhones and the Google Maps and so on. Um, yeah, just when you were mentioning about institutions there, um, I was just thinking about D- Douglas North, the late Douglas North. And yeah, so he, he was quite prominent in terms of identifying why these institutions and why economies are, are stronger than they would normally be based on the concept of having a constitution that's that's amenable to a good economy growing. And that's why possibly North Korea and Cuba have not been as successful as the likes of North America and we say Ireland. Yeah, that's, I mean, North has this phrase that a you know, society that rewards productive activity will get productive activity and a society that rewards piracy will get pirates. And that's a Kind of a, a one sentence summary of his work, but I think he he is really one of the great social scientists uh, of the 20th century. Are you currently in touch with um, staff at George Mason University? Um, more, more by sort of occasional email conversations than by um, I'm not physically located there. They must be doing something extremely well in terms of. The relationship with economics and also the the diverse subjects that they write about, and I don't know if it's if it's any accident that I happen to be speaking. I think you're the fourth person, and I'm going to be talking to Brian Kaplan on Friday, who will be the fifth. And I don't know if that's a coincidence or is this something that, based on my search for people who have interesting content and books, and also something very very interesting to to share with us. And that I tend to gravitate toward finding these at George Mason. And I'm not looking up George Mason University's website. I'm just looking for people who have, like yourself and Brian, um, like yourself and Brian, who have interesting blogs and write extremely well and interesting uh, text. Is this something that is nurtured there or you just happen to bounce ideas off one another? Well, you know, George Mason, even 20 years ago, had a... Uh, was one of, the, one of the few places that was interested in what's known as Austrian economics. And I think most of us, with the, with the exception of Pete Betke, Pete Betke, in some sense, is, the, is one of the main personalities at George Mason. Uh, maybe James Buchanan would get the would might be the most important. Of course, he died recently. Um, but Betke is consciously Austrian, uh, whereas Brian Kaplan and Tyler Cowen and even myself would emphasize our differences with Austrian economics. 
but Betke, who's another would be another interesting person to interview, uh, has this distinction between mainstream and mainline economics. What he calls mainline economics can be traced, you know, from Adam Smith through to Friedrich Hayek and uh, and sort of some modern Austrian economists. What he calls mainstream economics is, you know, the stuff that's done it uh, by the the uh, t- sort of the leading economists at MIT, Harvard, and so on. And the point there is that mainstream economics kind of went off a little, off track a little bit. And I've got a forthcoming book that's kind of in that spirit. Uh, the book's called Specialization in Trade: Colon A Reintroduction to Economics. And the, the point it makes is that uh, in the 1940s the MIT economics department got a big boost from the defense department and rose from literally not having a PhD program to being uh, the leading department uh, in a space of less than two decades. Uh, But it was based on a concept of economics that using engineering as a metaphor, whereas, you know, someone like Hayek uh, and the Austrian economists would never have tolerated that as a metaphor, the, the economy is not a simple machine. You know, you've been talking about how complex it is, and that's a major theme in my work. And I think that's that would be a major theme in, in the work of, of all of the uh, George Mason economists, even when they're not explicitly Austrian. So, uh, you know, long story short, you have this university that you know had this affinity for this what for years and maybe still is spurned as, as an oddity of Austrian economics. But uh, in the age of the Internet, when, when people like you uh, can see what kind of things economists can talk about, uh, all of a sudden the advantages of being in the main line rather than the mainstream uh, are apparent. Arnold, your book that you said you're working on, Specialization and Trade, uh, I came across a recent article and it was an interview with yourself or maybe you wrote a, a post on your own blog and I had here, you mentioned it was called The Book of Arnold. I don't know whether that was a working title or is that something that you are also working on? No, that was, that was a joke uh, that, <laughs> about this book, yeah, because the the, uh, the musical The Book of Mormon turns out has a, a, a character named Arnold and the final scenes in the in the musical they sing about the Book of Arnold, so I figured I'd, I'd throw that in there. Well, you, you got me but out there. I was, re- I was really referring to what, what we're calling specialization in trade, actually. Yeah. Arnold, can I talk briefly about your role at Freddie Mac and when you testified to Congress on its collapse? Sure. And was this uh, something that you did before Home Fair, before you set up Home Fair? Yes, yeah. So I was at Freddie Mac in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and I, I, I like to say it's before Freddie Mac became famous. And uh, a lot of my job was in quantifying uh, risk measurements so that we could try to price properly for risk and to uh, have enough capital set aside for risk. Um I thought we did a pretty good job in those days, and I was shocked to find that Freddie Mac got in trouble, uh, you know, sort of 20 years later, or not, not 20 years later, 10 years later. Um, and 
as best I can tell, a few things happened that, that made it get in trouble. One is that what it, it started to count as capital stuff that really wasn't capital, things like future um, sort of tax advantages. I mean, just strange things like that. Uh, which and those things had no had no value in, in in any kind of crisis, so shouldn't have been counted as capital. This sounds like something again wrong. Yeah, in, in a way, very much like that. Um, and then the other thing is that I, I strongly suspect I haven't been able to verify this, but um, they started buying mortgage instruments based on agency ratings, you know, the Moody's and Standard Poor's ratings of AA and AAA, rather than run them through the models that we developed, because the models that we developed would have shown that those were not AAA rated by by our standards. Um, so I think that was uh, another factor. Uh, but more fundamentally, they, the, the culture changed very abruptly uh, around 2003, 2004, when the, when the board brought in a new CEO, they 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 kicked out the CEO who was there when I was there, who was very very he was very conscious of protecting the safety and soundness of the company. Uh, there was a, an attempt to uh, spread what were called no documentation loans uh, in the late 1980s, where the borrower didn't have to show any proof that they were earning the income that they were um, reporting in, in their mortgage application. And uh, the CEO, when I was there, Leland Brenzel, uh, quashed that. He got together with the, with the CEO of Fannie Mae and said, we cannot go this direction. It'll be a race to the bottom. And uh, so we've got to stop that. But you know, 10 years later, or 15 years later, around 2003-2004, this these these risky underwriting practices were were coming back in, and this time there was a new CEO, and he said, "Go ahead with it." Um, and he, you know, he actually fired uh, the chief risk officer who had been with the company through for really you know about 20 years, uh, and who. who you know, saw that these kinds of risky loans were were going to cause problems, and uh, but the CEO didn't want to hear it. So um, anyway, that's kind of my memory of the of that history there. It's almost like a mutiny on a on a ship where they get rid of the captain who could possibly be seen as someone who's controlling the or navigating the the seas in a at the risky seas in a, in a quite a profound and correct manner based on some of the models that you've employed. Yeah. But is, would this be particularly due to the, uh, the, the changes, the fundamental changes introduced by, say, Paul Volcker, reducing interest rates to low levels and putting restrictions and regulations on capital controls leading into the 80s, that you had all these mortgage-backed securities developed then that, Led eventually to the the implosion of that mortgage market. Yeah, well, the United States has a a, a long history of crisis of sort of real estate bubbles. In some ways, we were founded as a gigantic real estate bubble. You know, the 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 frontier where people were 
you know, always uh, rushing to get new new property. And uh, even our first president, George Washington, was a property surveyor. That was his kind of occupation. So uh, real estate's always been a big deal. There's all, all frequently been bubbles and crashes. And in this century, I can think of several instances where the reaction to the one crisis leads to a set of regulations and policies that uh, corrects the problems of the of the most recent crisis, but then causes the problems of the next. So I think what you might be alluding to is that you know in the 1980s we had what was called the savings and loan crisis, where these particular savings institutions that were so, that were supposed to be limited to the housing market and holding mortgages collapsed because of the sudden rise in inflation and interest rates. And the response to that was to say that we need mortgage-backed securities. We also need to have uh, risk-based capital regulations because one of the things that the savings and loans did in their most desperate times was, was take on riskier and riskier asset portfolios in the hopes that they could you know, rescue themselves. Uh, there was kind of a double or nothing kind of bet with the taxpayers ending up on the losing end of it. So they had risk-based capital, and they also, the savings and loans kind of hid their their problems with what was called book value accounting, uh, which meant that they didn't adjust their assets and liabilities to current market values. So the regulators p- uh, pushed for market value accounting. But then in 2008, all three of these things, the securitization, which the regulators wanted, the risk-based capital, which the regulators wanted, and the mark-to-market accounting all uh, were very counterproductive. They uh, they led to the excess leverage in very bad mortgage security assets, and then the mark-to-market accounting com- compounded that because these things could, were very quickly marked down, and then people had to had to sell in a hurry to meet capital requirements, and it became a, a rapid, vicious cycle downward. And Arnold, um, why was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, why were they bailed out if, or rescued, if that's the proper term? Okay, so in the what happened is in the, the summer of 2008, it became clear to investors that both companies were insolvent. And then, and they, and everybody you know, knew that something was going to happen with with the government was going to have to do something, and so they started to pay higher interest rates on their debt because creditors weren't sure they they were going to be paid back. And one, and, and at that point, if you if you know that the government's going to take them over, the government pays, let's say, an interest rate of five percent, and Freddie and Fannie are starting to pay interest rates of seven eight percent. And you know that the government is ultimately going to be liable for that debt anyway. If you believe that the government won't let them fail, then the government just has to take them over right away, because every day they operate in business, they're taking out loans at at, at interest rates that are much higher than the government would have to pay if it took them over. So uh, it it quickly became a necessity for the government, you know, given that the government was going to eventually bail out their creditors anyway, this, it became a case of the sooner the better. So I think it was sometime in mid-September 2008 that the government put them into something called conservatorship. The government didn't want to put them on the balance sheet, so it 
because that would have just inflated the national debt by a lot. I mean, that's just a, it's a pure bookkeeping thing. I mean, it, the, you know, the, it had no economic advantage calling it conservatorship, and it had the disadvantage that the, the legal status of the companies is actually very uncertain. There are, there are still shareholders out there who think that they deserve uh, some money now that the companies have been sort of put back together again. Uh, but anyway, that, that, that they created this conservatorship. You've a number of books, Arnold, and you mentioned this is your is this your sixth one you're working on, specialization and trade. Yes, I think that's right. At the moment, um, which do you feel is your finest work in terms of possibly as a self fulfillment, but also regarding to what's going on in the economy today? Well, I I do like the one I'm working on. It's good. I think the something I wrote called the Three Languages of Politics, which doesn't have economics in it. Uh, really at all is something that I think is just a very good framework for understanding how political discussions take place and why they why they're not dialogues why why people end up talking past each other so I like that and the and the one you've you've been talking about the you know, invisible wealth that I think is very useful in part because it it has interviews with a lot of the of, uh, very uh, interesting economists, including Douglas North, who you mentioned. And, and I know you asked me to choose my favorite, but it's hard because the the book on healthcare. I'm, I said at the time I thought it was going to still be valid ten years out, and uh, it is now ten years since I wrote it, and uh, it, it is, I think, still valid. It and is. Crisis valid. of abundance. Yes. So, and, and, anyway, those, those, anyway, those are the ones that I'm still proud of. And uh, your book, Crisis of Abundance, Rethinking How We Pay for Healthcare, as you mentioned, you wrote it 10 years ago, but it's very much a political issue, more so, I think, than an economic or social issue today. And we have... In America, what's known, nicknamed as Obamacare, but how are people going to pay for this type of health care and uh, possibly the modern medicine that we have today compared to the past? Because there seems to be quite a lot out there to, to cure ailments. And Yeah, I, I start out by arguing that if, if all we had to work with was the mix of types of doctors and types of equipment that we had in, let's say, 1970, we would have no trouble paying for health care. It's all of the new types of equipment and new types of specialists that are primarily responsible for, for raising the, uh, the, the spending on health care. Now, I'm not saying we should go back to 1970s health care. I'm just making the point that there's no magical way to reduce healthcare spending without without taking away some of that uh, those new specialties and procedures. So what I suggest in the book is, and this gets to your point about being uh, an issue of politics, is that we have, as individuals, we all of us would like to have unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for them. Uh, but anyone can see that that. That that's unworkable for society as a whole. You have to have some. Either you have to limit people's access by rationing, or you know, making people wait in line, or having the government decide which treatments are approved and not approved. 
or you have to have people make their own choices uh, using more of their own money uh, to decide you know, which procedures to undergo and which procedures not to undergo. So the big political choice is are you going to put most of the burden of uh, rationing health care on people themselves, making their own decisions, using a lot of their own money, or you know, buying a type of health insurance that they, you know, they can afford with their own money? Or are you going to have the government involved in, in both paying for health care and then consequently telling people what counts as health care, what they can have and what they cannot have? What would your views be on in terms of intellectual property and the patents that a lot of these companies have and actually sell off to individual investors as we are aware of a recent hedge fund manager who has bought a particular drug that has increased the price by 5,000% and hence have skyrocketed the prices of healthcare or for that particular HIV drug. I, I think I think of that as kind of a peculiarity in kind of the way, you know, kind of a detailed peculiarity in the way the way the patent laws are uh, administered uh, for drugs in the U.S. That that, that that I think is more of an anomaly. In general, I think patents in the case of drugs are probably more justified than in other areas, in that you know it really takes a lot of upfront research and development cost to produce a drug and that includes the cost of all the mistakes you make right it isn't just you don't you, you don't just go straight to a successful drug you try thousands of different molecules uh, and you come up with a few that seem promising and then you undergo drug trials and then the ones that seem promising a lot of them don't don't pan out in the drug trials so it's a very expensive process and then but once it's the drug works, the cost of copying it is almost zero. So you, you need some kind of patent protection there, much more than some of the other areas like business process patents and some of the other absurd patents that we have. So I think the way to reduce drug costs, drug development costs, is to reform the FDA process, the Food and Drug Administration process. I think that the, uh, you know, Clinical trials are certainly a great way to uh, validate drugs, but I think that we make the, make them too costly and require a bit too much, especially once the safety of a drug has been uh, established. The efficacy standards become too costly, uh, and, they, and that's reducing the rate of drug development. Did you ever hear of a company called 23andMe? Uh, yes, sure, sure. They're the... They would do your genome for you. Yes, and the ancestry as well. It's something I was going to actually do a couple of years ago, and I think it was only $99 at the time. But as I was, went back to it a few months later, the FDA had shut it down and pending uh, some investigations. But it's back, and they only did the ancestry part of it, but it's back up and running now at the moment, and I think it's $169. But I don't think it's 100% back to the way it used to be. And the owner, I don't know what her name is, is uh, trying to establish or reestablish the position because it, it could track your your likelihood of developing certain illnesses like Parkinson's and put you in this particular bracket. And a technology company, and I'm sure it's, uh, I don't know if they're more of a tech company or a medical company, but this is something that 
we feel the need to, to, to these companies are, are important to us now in order to make these services global and and cheaper for people to access. Yeah, absolutely. That 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 is probably that is certainly an example where the uh, you know, the American the application of the uh, drug laws by the Food and Drug Administration is very questionable. And the reason you know the notion that people might misuse the information that they got about themselves that that you know they're, they're afraid that you know Arnold Kling or Frank Conroy will misuse the information that they get and therefore they should not be allowed to get that information. That that's a very retrograde idea, especially with, with the way healthcare uh, and health science is going. We mentioned Cuba earlier on as a, a company or as sorry, as a as a country who would have bad institutions, but as far as I recall, they possibly have one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Is that true? No. No? Okay. <laughs> Or maybe it's perhaps the ratio of doctors to that. That's kind of a, a Michael Moore propaganda point. But if Michael Moore ever gets sick, I'll be glad to pay his way to Cuba <laughs> to uh, deal with the doctors there. <laughs> Arnold, um, could I ask you a few quick questions before we wrap up? Sure. What one thing annoys you about the economy, economic policy, or even? somebody like Michael Moore, perhaps, or some economist, or they're thinking? I think probably what annoys me most is the smugness of sort of the progressive economists. They're convinced that their methodology is better than what I think it really is, and they're convinced that their what they know enables them to manage an economy from uh, a central government position better than I believe it actually can. Who would your main influencers be? I will go with, I think they're all people who could take a balanced and reasonable view of people who disagreed with them. So I would count, again, Bernie Safran. I would count Robert Solo. I would count Tyler Cowen. I would say somebody who represents the opposite of that is someone like Paul Krugman, who never seems to give any credit to people who disagree with him. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. And do you have any recommended books? I'll put all the links on the show notes page for your own books too, Arnold. Oh, I always have lots of books. The, the book that I'm currently recommending is an e-book by a fellow named Martin Gurry, G-U-R-R-I. I think if you want to understand the Donald Trump phenomenon, it's it, it's a book to read. He wrote it before Trump. He wrote it before before this election season started. So I. I give him credit for understanding the mood of the public and the way the Internet is affecting how the public interacts with politics well ahead of the Trump phenomenon, but uh, it, it, it clearly makes it easier to understand the Trump phenomenon. Are people more impo- intelligent now, given that we do not possibly trust politicians from, say, compared to citizens 100 years ago? Yeah. We're more tuned in. Yeah, and he makes the point that the the internet is part of that. That that people can find out, they they can be aware of the mistakes and the disappointments 
that come from politicians that politicians were able to cover up before the internet was was around. I'm just wondering also, is Donald Trump a, a metaphor or a, a voice or an outlet for these people who want to change and want to wants to change a system? Yeah, exactly. You get what what you get again, according to Gori, is first of all more awareness and frustration with the mistakes of leaders, and also a more ability to coalesce around opposition to leaders. So you couldn't have had a, a coalition. You, you could without the internet, Trump would not have succeeded. But you know, as recently as ten years ago. In order to get anywhere in, in, in a presidential race, you needed endorsements from the top party leaders. And Trump had zero endorsements from Republican Party leaders until like maybe a month or two ago. So, you know, it, it, the environment has just changed very rapidly. And again, Martin Gurry, he talks about that, for, by the way, throughout the world. I think, he, I think he even has some of his examples from Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. And... Uh, he just he captures the the new politics that he calls the revolt of the public. That's the title of the book. Yeah, we're seeing that right across Europe, also. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Arnold, what one habit do you recommend, or that helps you get things done? Because you're writing a book at the moment, and I'd love to know: Do you have any particular structure put in place for this? Well, Tyler Cowan recommends just you know writing, trying to write about every day. And I found that when I think about my blog, you know, when I say, you know, do I want to post on something, what's often in the back of my mind is, you know, would I ever want to refer back to this when I was writing a book? And uh, Brad DeLong, who's a, a, a progressive blogger, has that same point of view. That is, he he's using it as a, his blog in part as a way of taking notes on things for future reference. And uh, so that I do, and I also do, when, when I read a book I tr- that is interesting to me, I try to write a review of it. And, you know, fortunately, the, the Library of Economics and Liberty publishes monthly essays of mine, so I get to, you know, have those, you know, my, uh, my reviews published online. Um, one final question, Arnold. Do you have a takeaway that you'd like to leave with our listeners regarding any aspect of any topic that we looked at today? Wow. Uh, or life? Something on life? Uh, something on life. Uh, I would say what's interesting to me is how enjoyable life is nowadays and how if you want to live a good lifestyle, you can find hobbies and interests that don't cost very much, uh, so it's not hard to enjoy life, uh, but if you want to make yourself miserable, watch politics. So uh, just remember that you can enjoy life if you don't follow politics too closely or, pay, or care about it too much. That's a great way to end. Arnold, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. You can find all the links to Arnold on economicrockstar.com forward slash Arnold Kling. Arnold, thank you for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it.
never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast, visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox.